Welcome to Goshen Books Meet the Memoir series on finding home far from home. I'm your host, Leanne Wakabayashi, and I'm thrilled to be welcoming one of Japan's best loved and best known writers in the English language, Suzanne Kamata. Suzanne is a longtime Japan resident of Tokushima, famous for the Awa Adori Dance Festival each year. She's the author of many award-winning books centered on a theme close to her heart, raising a child with multiple disabilities. As the mother of twins born extremely early, her daughter Lilia is both deaf and has cerebral palsy, but that hasn't slowed mother or daughter down. In fact, they've taken Lilia's wheelchair along for some amazing rides. In a quest to satisfy Lilia's desire to see the world, she came up with the idea of writing a mother-daughter travel memoir. The result is Squeaky Wheels, Travels with My Daughter by Train, Plane, Metro, Tuk-Tuk, and Wheelchair. This book was written with the support of a grant from the Sustainable Arts Foundation. In manuscript form, it won first place in the memoir novel category of the Half the World Global Literati Award. And since publication has won numerous honors, including the 2020 CIBA Harton Award, the 2019 Living Now Body Award, a Silver Nautilus Book Award, and a Next Generation Indie Book Award for Travel. I am so thrilled to introduce you to Suzanne Kamada. Great to see you. Thank you so much for having me. It's always great to talk to you. And it's great to talk to you too. We've known each other for decades from before we had children even, and our children are in similar in, in this age bracket. Um, I've had the pleasure of visiting Suzanne in our home in Tokushima during the Awa Adori dancing festival, which was an amazing time and meeting Lilia on many occasions. And so reading Suzanne's story, I'm a little bit biased because I know the family and I know Lilia. And it's so, you know, when you know the family member, it's a different kind of read. And the, the joy in, in a really well-written book is that you find out things you never knew. You just had no idea about. And so that is what makes uh, Suzanne's memoir about her her life with her daughter, and especially traveling with daughter, so chock full of golden nuggets. And um, what I like to ask you from the beginning is about your, uh, about your ability to just rise up and take a, a positive outlook on whatever life throws at you, because Yes, you know this. You could, we could say that this is a talk that's kind of a, a, a niche interest to families who have family members in wheelchairs or struggling with a, some kind of disability. But I really feel that this is a story about resilience and about um, having a positive attitude in whatever life throws at you. And I'm wondering. You said something interesting that I, before that I'd like to bring up, and that is that you use writing to work through your feelings. I wonder if you'd want to 
comment on that, Suzanne? I think a lot of writers um, do that. Um, uh, like like many writers keep journals or non non um, publishing writers keep journals. Um, I guess writing is the way that I kind of make sense of what is happening to me. And um, I, I tend to write about everything. <laughs> there, there are actually some things that were quite traumatic that I have not in my life that I have not written about at all. And I, I don't really want to. Um, but I don't think that what I've written about in this book is in any way sad. Um, I think more I was trying to show that uh, like when some people look at a child in a wheelchair or, you know, someone who's using sign language and they feel distant from them, um, they might just see the disability. But I, mm. I was keen to present Lilia as a well-rounded, um, you know, relatively normal teenager, which is what she is to me, you know, that we, we have arguments and she has a very strong will. And she has, you know, dreams and um, hobbies and just like anybody else. And I wanted to, to put that across, you know, in writing about her from a very early age. I think you've done that masterfully, that you've done it in a way that you don't let her disabilities define her. And that's why the book has won so many awards, because she comes across so in, as such a human being. And you, too in your role as her mother, you know, uh, a, a mother who's trying to do the best she can under very difficult circumstances and won't take no for an answer. And I'd like to, to kind of extend on that, that theme of not taking no for an answer. Because a lot of people would say, what, go to Paris with a daughter in a wheelchair? Are you kidding? Why did it even occur to you that you could do it? <laughs> well, I think for one thing, um, like my my husband sometimes um, just feels like it's too much trouble to go out in public, you know, with the wheelchair, like, to, you know, to put pick it up and put it in the car and take it down and all that. Um, but for me, um, it was kind of a, writing this book, for example, was a way to motivate myself. So um, I would propose, you know, some outing, at, like, for example, to go see the Yayoi Kusama exhibition in Osaka. And, you know, I thought I could write about that. And then um, as the time grew closer, I would start to dread it. <laughs> you know, like, I think uh, we have to, you know, it's going to be so much trouble getting on the bus. And then, and then how will the taxi driver, you know, treat us? And will the museum be accessible and I had all these concerns but I had already told my daughter we were going to do it and she didn't forget and you know and then the day before she'd be like oh I can't wait to go see the Yayoi Kusama exhibition you know so I, I had to commit to it so um, the whole the whole Paris trip and the book you know and once I um, had the idea and I proposed it to her I had to follow through so um in a way, it was a way, you know, a way to motivate myself to do the things that I really wanted to do, but I might have found daunting. And, and I knew like if we had troubles and or struggles, you know, they might make a good story. <laughs> so so yeah, any absolutely. anything is material. If everything went smoothly, it wouldn't be very interesting. Um, I would almost say 
Suzanne, that Lily has become your muse. I, I would definitely say so, yeah. <laughs> yes, that yeah. so much of the writing and your, your, the focus of, your, your, of uh, your interests stems from her condition and trying to make sense of it yourself and help others make sense of it too. And then going a step beyond and celebrating it. I mean, that's what makes your writing just so engaging is to celebrate something that other people would say is kawaii so that, oh, pitiable, but you say, no, it is what it is and let's get on with it. Let's have a good time. Thank you and, for saying that, yeah. <laughs> oh, abs absolutely. Would you like to start reading for us? We'd love to hear. Um, okay, I'll read um, a bit from the beginning. So, this, so is, the this, um, this is the, the first full chapter called Lilia's World. And this is the chapter that I submitted um, for the Sustainable Arts Award grant. So this is what got me the grant, I guess. <laughs> and and this in this chapter, I, I just tell about how I basically got the idea to take my daughter to Paris, okay. My 12-year-old daughter, Lilia, wants to go to France. She plucks at her shirt and signs that she wants to go clothes shopping in Paris, fashion capital of the world. She gazes at me with her brown eyes, puts her hands together as if to pray and says, Iyai, ikitai, I want to go. In truth, I would love to take her. When I was about her age, I'd started studying French and dreamed of visiting Paris as well. I finally made it to the City of Lights my junior year in college. I'd been back a few times and since my semester abroad, but not since I met my husband, who was convinced that the French were snooty. For a long time, I'd fantasized that when she turned 12, Lilia and I would take a trip to Paris together, leaving her dad and twin brother behind in Tokushima. Alas, France is very far from Tokushima Prefecture, where we now live and we are perpetually broke. Until the birth of our children, my husband Yoshi and I lived comfortably working as teachers in public schools. But when our twins were born 14 weeks early, and it became clear that our daughter was deaf and had cerebral palsy, I was forced to quit my job. At the moment, Paris is out of reach. Still, I'm intrigued by her sudden interest. I admit I may have planted a seed in her curly-haired head at some point, but for the most part, she came into this wanderlust on her own. How did you learn about shopping in Paris? I asked her. I saw it on TV, she signs. I was impressed that she'd picked it up on her own. She learned quite a bit from television and manga, which many parents considered junk. A few days later, she digs into her school satchel and pulls out a flyer advertising an upcoming show at the nearby planetarium. The, the theme is Vincent van Gogh's The Starry Night and there's a picture of the artist himself. Yay, she says, stabbing her finger at the advertisement. I don't tell her right then that I once visited the Van Gogh Museum in Amsterdam. 
and had spent some time in the city en route to a writer's conference before she was born. I went on a cruise through the canals, climbed the stairs to Anne Frank's hiding place, and took in the collection at the Ricks Museum. I, I know that if I tell Lilia this, she'll add the city to her increasingly long list of places to visit, and her dad and I still haven't fulfilled our promise of taking her to Tokyo Disneyland. But I do tell her that Van Gogh was interested in Japanese art and that he painted his own imitations of some of Hokusai's famous paintings. She pats her chest impatiently. I know, I know. And then she proceeds to sign the trouble artist's life story. Where'd you learn all that? I ask her. She puts her hands together and then opens them from a book. No doubt she read about him in one of those manga biographies that she loves. Impressed, I indicate a print of Croze Anemon hanging on our wall. That's by Van Gogh. She immediately pulls herself up onto the back of the sofa to get a better look and nods in appreciation. Her curiosity about the world doesn't stop there. A couple of weeks later, when my first novel is published in Russian translation, she asks me to help her find the country on the globe. And then Yoshi and I take her and her brother Gio to see the Bolshoi Circus, where she is enchanted by the cat tamer and the tightrope walkers and the spangled lady on a unicycle. She adds Russia to her list and Hawaii, having spent hours looking at photos of Yoshi's and my wedding. She wants to go to Italy too, after watching a travelogue on TV. Do they speak French in Italy? She asks me via sign language. No, I reply, Italian. Ciao means hello. She shrieks in delight and signs easy by stabbing the palm of one hand with her index, index finger and then touching her chin. Ciao is the name of one of her favorite monthly manga magazines. She knows that word and she loves pasta. A girl after her mother's heart, I'm thinking. When I was growing up in small town Michigan, I had my own travel fantasies. I'd go to New York, first of all, and then to Australia, Egypt, Paris. I eventually went to some of those places and also to a small farming town in Japan where I wound up falling in love. I'm thinking that being interested in the world as she is, Lily will love social studies. It'll probably be her favorite subject next year when she starts junior high school at the School for the Deaf. She'll get to learn about all these countries, where they are, what kind of clothes people wear, what they eat. Uh, I'm just gonna skip ahead a little bit, okay. At the beginning of summer vacation, Yoshi and I are asked to attend a special orientation meeting about Lilia's junior high school curriculum. She has been attending the Tokushima School for the Deaf since she was a baby. The school has an early intervention program which segues into a three-year kindergarten and continues through high school. We are lucky to live a mere 10 kilometers from the only school for the deaf in the prefecture. Others have to travel from far away. Although in kindergarten, there are about 10 kids in Lilia's class, the numbers have dwindled as parents have chosen to mainstream their children at schools closer to their homes. 
One boy who had been in the NICU at the same time as Lilia and Gio and who was born with multiple disabilities has died. Now there are only three kids in the sixth grade. Lilia and one other boy are multiply disabled. She has cerebral palsy and uses a wheelchair because she can't walk. The boy is autistic. The two of them are on the special education track at the deaf school. I don't really know what this means until my husband and I and the boy's mother show up for a meeting in a conference room on the third floor. It's the end of July. Thankfully, the room is cooled by a wall unit. The deaf school, like most other public schools in Japan, does not have central heating or air conditioning. When it's hot, the windows are open. Butterflies and mosquitoes, and sometimes errant birds, fly into the classrooms. The library books warp under the heat and humidity, which brings sorrow to a book lover like me. But maybe things will be different when the new school for the deaf and blind is built in three or four years. This building is old and bears cracks from the great Hanshin earthquake, which struck Kobe in 1995, shaking buildings all the way over here on the island of Shikoku. Although there are four floors and deafness is often paired with other disabilities, there is no elevator. My husband and I have complained about this time and time again, but the officials say that there is no money to build an elevator in a school that will soon be torn down. Why don't you send your daughter to the school for the handicapped, they ask. If my daughter is going to any other school, I would want her to go to a regular public school, not a school for the physically challenged. But we insist that what is most important for our daughter a bright, gregarious, sometimes lonely child, is communication. My husband, who no longer works at the high school where he was a baseball coach, currently teaches at the School for the Handicapped, recently renamed the Special Support School in a bid for political correctness. He knows that the teachers there are not fluent in sign language. Neither are the mostly hearing students. So while she might be able to go from floor to floor in her wheelchair all by herself, she would be cut off from her first language. We insist that she be allowed to remain at the School for the Deaf with her signing peers, kids she's known basically all her life. Okay, fine. The school administrators finally relent. She'll have to get up three flights of stairs all by herself because the junior high is on the third floor, the head teacher tells us. Why can't you move the junior high school downstairs? We ask. I mentioned a high school in Kobe where an entire class was moved to the first floor to accommodate one student who used a wheelchair. There aren't enough classrooms, we are told. It's a sprawling cavernous school with only about 40 students total. Because the students vary in ability, many study one-on-one -on -one with their teachers. But why can't the classrooms be partitioned? Or why can't the junior high school be moved downstairs and the younger kids who can walk moved upstairs? The head of the junior high, who's also Lilia's at-school physical therapist, 
suggests that it's not as bad as we think. With effort, Lilia can make it up the stairs while hanging on to the railing. It'll be part of her daily physical therapy. She'll just have to get to school extra early. While I still have some doubts, I know that the teachers at this school, some of whom have known Lilia since she was a baby, care about my daughter. I trust that they will make things as easy for Lilia as possible. So then there's the PowerPoint presentation about the classes that Lilia will be taking. She'll be studying Japanese, of course, and mathematics. And there will be some life training type courses, how to do laundry, how to prepare simple meals. These three years will go by in a flash, the teacher reminds us. We have to start getting her prepared to enter society, find out what she's good at, think about her future. She likes art, I think, and she's pretty good at it. Last summer, she won a prize for her painting of the Atomic Dome in Hiroshima. It was exhibited all over the prefecture, and later, an image of it was published in an American children's magazine. She spends hours drawing original comics. She tells anyone who asks that she wants to be a manga artist in the future. But I know that it's difficult to make a living as an artist. Although lately, Lily has been telling me that she wants to go to college, and I nod and say, you'll need to study really hard. No one else imagines that she will ever be able to pass the very difficult entrance examinations required by Japanese universities. It's doubtful that she will even be able to pass the rigorous exam required for in entrance into a Japanese high school. I've heard Japanese parents and educators say that one can determine a child's future by the fifth grade. Although I don't believe it myself, my husband agrees that fifth grade is key. That's the year that the wheat gets separated from the chaff. In the sixth grade, Lilia reads at about a third grade level. She can write simple sentences, but she makes many grammatical mistakes. In math, she hasn't gotten beyond multiplication. Long division still gives her trouble while her twin brother is dipping into algebra. There is no need for Lilia to worry about the Juken Benkyo, studying for exams that obsesses parents all across Japan, including the parents of Gio's classmates. Thus, there is no mention of the English, science, and social studies classes that are part of a standard junior high school education in Japan. These are test subjects. There's no English, I whispered to my husband. All this time, I've been telling my daughter that she'll have English classes from seventh grade. I've even started teaching her with a workbook so she'll have a head start. She learned how to write her and her brother's names years ago all by herself. She can write mama and love, and she knows what they mean. She knows how to say thank you in ASL. She says yummy after she digs into my spaghetti parmigiano. We'd like our daughter to study English, my husband says in his booming voice. As a Japanese man, he has more authority than I have, a foreign woman with a weird accent. 
I let him do the talking. And social studies, even just a little. The head teacher and the other mother listen patiently while my husband enumerates the reasons that, we, that we'd like those subjects to be added to our daughter's study load. I would have thought they'd be obvious. Everyone knows that Lilia has relatives in the United States, said her mother is an English speaker, although I communicate with her only in Japanese because I am the one who helps her with her homework and that she travels with her family. I mentioned how on our last visit to South Carolina where my family lives, Lilia struggled to communicate with those around her. She was trying to talk to my dad, her American grandfather. When she realized that he didn't understand any of her signs, she grabbed some paper and a pen and wrote her question in Japanese. My dad shrugged, uncomprehending. Finally, her cousin dashed off to find Lilia's brother, Gio. He translated and communication was achieved. Phew. <laughs> During that visit, Lilia looked up English expressions on her electronic dictionary demonstrating her eagerness to use the language to communicate. She wants to learn, I tell the head teacher. Having attempted to teach disinterested Japanese students how to speak English for over 15 years, I understand the importance of motivation. Well, thanks for bringing this up, the teacher says. If you hadn't said anything, we wouldn't have known how you felt. By the end of the meeting, we have hogged most of the time with our concerns about our daughter. My husband and I apologize to the mother of the autistic boy who hasn't expressed any worries of her own. Has she accepted her son's limitations? Does she think we are being unrealistic? One of the most often repeated phrases that I hear is shikata ga nai, which means it can't be helped. To me, it's an excuse to do nothing, to fail. But there is also a do or die spirit here. Think of kamikaze pilots. Although we have made our wishes known, my husband, a veteran of the Japanese education system, is pessimistic. He doesn't believe that the curriculum will be changed. It's too much trouble. The teachers are always too busy. A week later, I set out on a field trip with deaf school teachers and a parent or two to tour Lemon no Ie, Lemon House, a facility for adults with disabilities. I have mixed feelings about this outing. On the one hand, I'm interested in the lives and times of those with disabilities in Japan. On the other, I'm afraid it will depress me. My daughter's ambitions at age 12 go beyond sorting screws and group home dwelling. Every day, she shares with me her dreams of marriage and children and drawing manga and studying English, and of course, traveling to France. Her father expects that as an adult, she will live in the bungalow originally added onto her house for my mother-in-law. You have to tell Lilia that she won't be able to get married, Yoshi says. She needs to face reality. Meanwhile, I'm always trying to figure out how she can get off this small island and achieve her goals. I know that there are many people with cerebral palsy who have jobs, live independently, fall in love, marry and raise children. Japan needs to change, not my daughter. 
Lemon House is only about seven miles from downtown Tokushima, the prefectural capital, but it feels very rural. The bright yellow building is set amid farmer's fields of rice and sweet potatoes. In other words, it's isolated. Once inside, we are ushered to a room on the second floor for a PowerPoint presentation. I note that there doesn't seem to be a way for wheelchair users to get to this room. There's no elevator in evidence here, only stairs. I learned that Lemon House supports adults with disabilities working in the community. Some are placed in a noodle restaurant. Others take care of simple tasks in a dry cleaning business. Intellectually challenged individuals are also put to work in bakeries, in bento factories, and in a glassmaking factory where they make jewelry and other trinkets of brightly colored glass. After the presentation, we peek into a residence room downstairs, which is about the size of a business hotel room and then go through large halls where workers make boxes or stuff envelopes or perform other simple tasks under the watch of an able-bodied supervisor. Some, for example, those with autism who'd rather avoid the company of others, work behind screens fashioned out of cardboard. Others sort and assemble at tables with company. They look up curiously as we pass through. We also visit a small house that has been constructed nearby as a trial for independent living. Currently, and as for as long as they wish, two guys with autism are living there with a rotating staff of helpers. It's not going as well as we hoped, our tour guide tells us. The roommates don't get along, so their schedules are completely separate. Their possessions are strictly divided there are two rolls of toilet paper in the bathroom labeled with the owner's names. Apparently, aside from mealtimes, when they're in the house, they disappear behind the doors of their rooms where they don't have to deal with each other. I'm impressed by the guide's honesty and also cheered by the house. It's small, but there's nothing institutional about it. Maybe in 10 years, Lilia could experiment in living in such a house herself with a roommate, or maybe someday with a husband. The rent would be just about covered by the monthly stipend she gets from the government. However, when I hear the wages for the workers in the on-site facility, 200 yen, about $2 per hour, well below minimum wage, I wonder how Lilia will ever be able to save up enough money to travel to Paris. On the minibus ride to visit another group home administered by Lemon House, I chat with Lilia's sixth grade teacher. I tell her about how and why I want my daughter to learn English and social studies and art, about how I don't think it's necessary to start preparing for a menial job in seventh grade. How long would it take her to learn how to stuff an envelope anyhow? Five minutes? But her teacher reminds me that all junior high school students are encouraged to think about for future employment. There's this new problem in Japanese society with young adults who don't want to work, who just hang out in their parents' houses after graduation playing video games. The Ministry of Education dictates that all kids, differently abled or not, work as interns for a spell, even though they aren't legally old enough to hold jobs. And in the current dismal economy, 
their future employment prospects don't look so good. It's important, her teacher says, to begin preparing Lilia for the future now. Well then, if there's not enough time for all the classes that I want her to have, I'll teach her at home. I can teach her basic English and ASL, names of animals, colors, verbs, greetings for every time of day. And the tutor I hired for her a few years ago is qualified to teach art. Or maybe she can learn to paint and draw in a class somewhere on Saturdays. I can take her to museums. As for social studies, She's probably learned more about the world already from her trips to America than she would have from sitting at a desk reading a textbook. We'll travel and she'll learn more. I'll take you to Paris, I tell Lilia, not thinking for once about access accessibility or the size of our bank account. Just you and I. I'll teach her about art and history and the beginnings of sign language. We'll eat French fruit, French food and cruise the Seine and take an elevator up the Eiffel Tower. Paris later, she signs. First, I want to go to Disneyland. Ah, very nice. Questions, comments? Yes, Jen, if you could unmute yourself. Okay. Thank you. I haven't read your book yet. Suzanne, so just wondering, like you've been to Paris before you went with Lilia, how going there with her changed your perspective of the city? Um, yeah. And that um, well, obviously before, the first few times I went to Paris, I wasn't thinking about accessibility at all. Um, so I, I discovered that, you know, it's an, old city and uh, it isn't always particularly accessible, but um, the, I don't know, the French have like, uh, the, the stereotype of the French is that they are kind of cold, <laughs> sometimes rude, um, but people were very, very warm and helpful, um, especially toward my daughter. So I think my, my perception of French people in general changed a bit, that, that now I think they're really nice. <laughs> Great. Did you tell your husband that too? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I told them, you know, how helpful people were, but. <laughs> nice. Thanks. Any other questions? Marianne? Um, I'm really interested, Suzanne, in your husband, because um, hearing your story, I know that you know of other cultures where um, things that seem to be impossible in Japan are actually not, you know, that where systems have been brought in to help people with all kinds of challenges. Um, I wonder, you know, how that was for your husband to um, kind of being stuck between the Japanese system and, and you and your daughter with these dreams, um, did he change a lot through this whole process? Um, yes, yes and no. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think he still, he still thinks I'm a bit idealistic and unrealistic and he, 
uh, like he he worked in a school you know the special support school for many years and there are other parents like me who you know they wanted their kids to go to college and they wanted had all these big dreams and um um and i i think he's maybe more aware of the limitations in japan within japan within the th than i am but um I think especially in Tokushima too, it's not a great place to be, to live if you're disabled. And like I said, the, the work center that she was introduced to is like in the middle of a, you know, fields and away from people. And he kind of realized that Tokushima wasn't the best place for her to live. So um, I think initially uh, he, he expected she would live with us forever, but then he realized maybe living someplace else um, more accessible would be better. Mm. So now she's living in Kyoto, actually. Oh, yeah. I like um, more, you know, she's living in sort of a, um, like a group residence. She has her own room, but um, she's living more or less independently. Mm -hmm. And um, he's all for that now, so. So That's I think cool. it was partly me pushing for her to get out into the world and he, him seeing that it's possible. Yeah, I know having heard about, um, for example, in America, there's a really famous deaf university where, you know, there are so many things that are possible. Right. She, she does have other disabilities as well, though. So she, she has, um, you know, some learning disabilities and mm -hmm. you know and mobility issues so it's mm -hmm. kind of complicated like i think if, if it was just one thing like just being deaf it would it would be a lot easier <laughs> mm -hmm. or just using a wheelchair and not being deaf it would be easier but having more than one disability complicates things greatly sure and could I ask you one question about Paris? Because it intrigued me very quickly. Did you yeah. manage to ride on the metro? We did. <laughs> because my memory of the, the Paris metro is I don't think that they're very um, user friendly, right? Well, in the very, the, the very first part of the book, I opened it with us being stuck in the metro and not, not, being, not knowing how to get out of the station because there were no elevators so yeah. yeah but i'm not gonna spoil the books so. <laughs> oh. <laughs> that's an achievement to go to paris and write the metro we did we did all the things <laughs> so suzanne one of the one of the things for me that made the book universal was this message that kept hammering on which was planning how life life is so much more pleasant with a little bit of planning or a lot of planning. And this trip to Paris was planned to the nth degree in order to make happen. And I think this is a message for all of us, especially people who tend to be spontaneous and want to just do things off the cuff. And your life, were you like that before you had kids more spontaneous or were you more of a planner? No, um, the first time I went to Paris, um, I, I deliberately didn't make any plans because um, like my brother had gone to Europe and he just backpacked around. And as you know, as far as I could tell, he never made a reservation or anything like that. And I wanted to do the same thing. 
So this was my first trip uh, abroad solo. And I was going to be studying um, at Avignon, but I went a week early so I could spend some time in Paris. And I didn't make a hotel reservation or anything like that. And then I arrived in Paris in August and there was, uh, for some reason, like there were, all the hotels were booked or something. <laughs> and I was, I was jet lagged and I was tired and, you know, my, you know, I, I had, you know, a bit of French, but it wasn't quite fluent then. And I remember just sitting on the curb and, and wanting to cry because I didn't know where I was going to sleep that night. <laughs> <laughs> so, so I've been maybe a bit more of a planner since then. But uh, <laughs> Really? So you think that that was a turning point for you, that, that experience? Um, I think that since then I've always made, you know, at least the hotel reservation. <laughs> yeah. There's that beautiful scene in the book where you and Lilia ascend the Eiffel Tower to have dinner and how you had bought your dresses and your shoes and you were all put together for this exciting dinner out. So that to me was also the, the ultimate planning that it wasn't just about wheel, wheelchair accessibility, but it was about having fun together. And that to me was so moving that you'd done that. Was that at Lilia's instigation or yours to have that dinner in the Eiffel Tower? It was mine, you know, I thought, you know, I, I just thought it would be special and fun and it would be like the, it could be like the pinnacle <laughs> of our experience. And it was, it was really, it was great, yeah. Um, I think she probably would have been fine just eating at McDonald's or something, but, you know, I wanted to have, I wanted her to have that experience, you know. It seems that, that that's something you're, you're really, gifted at as a mother is is planting elegant memories in her life story giving her these elegant exquisite moments that keep do you find that they keep raising the bar that the more that you know if you give her if you give her champagne and french food at the uh, eiffel tower then what is she going to want next is that is that also part of the story I think really Lily has kind of simple, simple um, pleasure and she enjoys simple pleasures. And um, I think she was a little bit nervous actually like getting all dressed up and, you know, eating in this fancy restaurant with like four forks and, <laughs> <laughs> but, but um, I don't know. I mean, she's, she's very, you've met her, you know, she's very curious and open and, you know, she sees the cherry blossoms in the spring and she's excited and, you know, she, it's easy to please her. So I would, I would say um, she would probably be happy with any new experience, you know. <laughs> That's lovely. I believe that everyone has a memoir within waiting to be born. And we can look back on our lives with gratitude and pride for growing beyond the limitations that society and our family background may have put before us to discover the blessings of a life outside the comfort zone, to share stories that can inspire the friends and family who may not have understood us till now, and the many who have walked in our ways and are much in need of a role model 
To call yourself a memoir writer begins the day you commit to telling your story. That's why I started GoshenBooks.com, to provide you with the tools and the incentive to complete your memoir. Get private coaching directly from me. One session can give you the focus you need, and regular weekly sessions will keep you on track to keep you motivated, accountable, and confident that your story matters, your life matters. You've got what it takes. Now go for it. Finish your book. Read the testimonials, the reviews, and sign up at GoshenBooks.com.